Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is The Path of the U.S. Dollar and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Gabriela Santos, a global market strategist with our Global Market Insights Strategy Group. With me today is Dr. David Kelly, our Chief Global Strategist and Head of the Global Market Insights Strategy Team, Roger Hallam, Chief Investment Officer with Currency Management, and Jack Manley, Global Market Strategist, all with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. We'll be discussing the paper this group has authored, The Path of the U.S. Dollar, Looking Forward by Looking Back. This paper calls the U.S. dollar currently overvalued in real terms versus its trading partners' currencies and says this overvaluation is not sustainable in the long run. The paper analyzes why the U.S. dollar is set to depreciate over the forecast horizon. So with that, let's explore the three main reasons why. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us as well. Roger, the first main force driving the U.S. dollar you discuss is balance of payment flows. What does the U.S.'s current account position today signal to you about the dollar's path going forward? The U.S.'s current account deficit position is suggestive of some degree of dollar overvaluation, although we should recognize that relative to the extremes of the deficit of the past 30 years, it isn't indicative of excessive U.S. dollar overvaluation. It is true, though, that the level of the current account has worsened somewhat following the rapid appreciation of the US dollar since 2014, where the current account has gone from something like a 2% deficit to 2.5% now. So it certainly does suggest that given that deterioration in those metrics, some degree of dollar overvaluation. Just picking up on what Roger is saying, I think another thing to think about is this precise point we're at in the business cycle right now, because normally, you know, this is an old business cycle, and you'd normally expect that you wouldn't see much fiscal stimulus. But what we're going to see going forward is clearly a fair amount of fiscal stimulus in the US when we have a supply side problem. And if demand in the US is growing by, say, 3% per year, but supply is growing by about 2% per year, then that extra demand in the economy, that actually is the sort of thing that pushes up the current account deficit. And is that through more imports? Yes, exactly. I mean, if people have got more money to spend and they spend it, but there is a limited ability of the US economy to supply those goods and services, that will tend to make the trade deficit a bit worse. Strong consumer spending tends to make the trade deficit a bit worse. You know, I think Roger and Jack and I really think that the trade deficit isn't that bad right now, but, you know, it is significant. It's not as bad as it has been in the past, and it does have the potential to get a little bit worse as we try to put more demand into this economy very late in expansion. I think one point I'd make about the deficit is actually the headline trade deficit has been pretty stable in recent years at about 2.8% of GDP. But I think that actually hides some of the underlying dynamics where actually if you look at the non-energy trade balance, that's deteriorated by about a percent since the sharp dollar appreciation of recent years. It's gone from about 1.5% as a headline deficit to about 2.5% now. It's really the fact that the US has increased its energy outputs. We all know about the rise of shale. And there's been a rotation in terms of the deficit between that energy and non-energy component. But certainly when you look at dynamics of the non-energy trade balance, it does suggest that some degree of deterioration, again, consistent with some moderate degree of dollar overvaluation. 
And I think that in some ways, what's happened in the last few years really indicates that, you know, if you do have an overvalued currency, it will over time undermine your currency, because you can really think about what's happened in energy is almost exogenous. And so it is important to look at the non-energy trade balance. And if that's worsening at a time when the dollar has been a very high, or at least higher than average in real terms, you know, that does have an effect. I always think that the effect of trade balances, you know, we talked about trade issues, financial flows, policy interventions. When it comes to trade issues, it's a little bit like global warming. Global warming cannot be accused of causing the weather on any given day. But in the long run, it does have an impact on the trend. And equally, your trade flows tend to be a sort of a weak gravitational force in the currency. You can't really see them on any given day or any given month or even perhaps any given year. But in the long run, if you do have a currency that's overvalued and that does cause a big trade deficit, that trade deficit will tend to put down pressure on the currency. David, I think you're getting at a question we often get and hear from clients as well, which is, you know, you're mentioning that the trade deficit, the current account deficit is getting worse over time and has the potential to get even worse, but it has been in a deficit position for a while now. So sometimes the question arises, why hasn't it already pushed the dollar lower, let's say over the past five years or so? And that's really because of all the other things going on. I mean, if you think about, first of all, we've had a trade deficit for a long time, but when we had the financial crisis, suddenly there was a rush for safety, even though ironically, the financial crisis started in the United States. That helped push up the dollar. And then the U.S. did not experience the sort of double-dip recession we've had in Europe or the problems with commodity markets that have hurt emerging markets. So it's been a slow economic expansion in the United States, but it's been a steady one. And I think that has encouraged global investors to see the U.S. as a stable destination for investment flows. And that has perhaps negated some of the trade imbalance effects. But as I say, in the long run, we do think that one of the forces pushing the dollar down will be the trade deficit. And this is why we put together long-term capital market assumptions, because it's not just about what tactically makes sense over the next year or two. It's what we think will happen in the long run. And Jax, as David mentioned, there is that powerful second force that tends to affect the dollar over time and certainly has over the past few years, which is financial flows. Is that something that's set to change here? Can you talk a little bit about how attractive U.S. assets are right now compared to other assets around the world? Are we at a turning point? Sure. Well, the U.S. economic expansion is pretty mature at this point right now. We're fairly late in the cycle, and this long bull market that we've been enjoying is, it might be looking a bit long in the tooth. Valuations in the U.S. are a little bit stretched, and and in turn, international opportunities are starting to look a little bit more attractive. Um, In both developed and emerging economies, we have more attractive valuations on a relative basis. Earnings expectations are improving, and positioning in the cycle for these emerging and developed countries, it's a little bit behind where the U.S. is right now, which means that we think that there's a bit more room to run. I think all of this means that the U.S. is really not the only house on the block anymore, and uh, that investors have a broader set of investment opportunities, and that includes opportunities that are overseas. I think when you look at trends in FDI as well, in recent quarters, you can clearly see a trend of FDI out of the U.S., and into the Eurozone. The Eurozone, we talked about double dip recessions, but the Eurozone has actually been going very strongly over the past few years. It's going to actually, relative to trend growth, actually outgrow the US this year and probably outgrow the US relative to trend next year as well. And that the lessening of political risk in Europe following Macron's victory in the French presidential elections earlier this year 
we think has further increased the opportunities for investment in Europe. And as I say, when you look at the balance of payments line items, you can very clearly see a change in trend from FDI where US investors are looking more favorably towards Europe as an investment destination. And that currency flow associated with that FDI will be one of the things that supports euro valuations and in fact pushes down the dollar over the years to come. And actually, just picking up on that, I think one of the interesting things, of course, this is a long-term outlook, but I think the tax reform effort in the United States could actually be quite important here. It looks like, as this is being recorded, that what we're going to have is a package when it comes to overseas investment, which both deems various monies held overseas as being repatriated and applies a tax to them, but also moves to a territorial system, which means that a U.S. company investing overseas will only have to pay the corporate tax overseas. They will not also get taxed by the U.S. on money they bring back here on top of that. And I think that there are two interesting aspects to this. The first is when you say repatriate money, you could either deem it repatriate and just apply a tax, or you could give people an incentive to bring it back on a teaser rate and then pay the tax then. But if we are simply going to apply a tax on money held overseas, there is no necessity to translate that into U.S. dollars to get taxed. And so I think any impetus to the U.S. dollar that would come from hordes of money overseas piling back into the United States and getting translated into dollars, I think that goes by the wayside. And then the second thing is, if you make it cheaper through a territorial system to invest overseas, there's a lot of arguments about how this might help investment in the U.S. What we do know is it ought to help actually what Roger was just talking about, foreign direct investment by U.S. companies. It will be their long-term profitability, the internal rate of return, and international investments will look better if tax rates are lower, we move to a territorial system, and they don't essentially get double tax on those profits. So I think foreign direct investment is another area where we think the financial flows will tend to push the dollar down in the long run. So it sounds like there are plenty of arguments overseas in terms of direct investment, equities, Jack, as you mentioned. Is there anything to be said here about interest rates, fixed income, anything here that seems more appealing, perhaps, in pulling those flows overseas compared to the U.S.? Sure, yeah. We generally think that towards the shorter end of the yield curve, the differential between U.S. and international interest rates is going to start to narrow a little bit as we further along this monetary policy cycle that we're in right now. Over the longer end of the yield curve, if you start looking out to 10 years and perhaps even further, we actually expect that these differentials will widen modestly, mostly because the United States is further along in this monetary policy normalization process than the rest of the developed world. With balance sheet normalization and interest rate hikes, we think that longer-ended yields in the United States will start to outstrip at a faster pace international yields. That said, we also think that inflation in the United States is going to start to pick up in a more meaningful way. And with inflation in the United States outpacing inflation in international markets, we expect that at the real level, interest rate differentials will narrow both in the short and longer end of the curve, which will make U.S. dollar-denominated paper less attractive to international investment. And I think that's really the key point here is that, yes, we're not quite in sync in terms of the monetary cycle because we're not in sync in terms of the economies. And so we do expect tightening in Europe and Japan to appear you know, later. But again, these are long-term capital market assumptions. We have time for those differentials to narrow. And in real terms, we think that the gap between real U.S. interest rates and real interest rates in Europe and Japan, which are reasonably wide right now, will actually narrow over this long period of time. And that, again, it's one more 
small force, which we think will tend to push the dollar down over time. There's also the very important consideration of what reserves managers will do with their international reserve allocations as rates between the various different central banks normalize over time. What we've seen is that reserve managers are very adverse to holding negatively yielding securities. You can think of reserves in some ways as a store of the country's wealth and reserve managers, international reserve managers are very reluctant to invest those in negative yielding assets. And so when you look at things like the euro, reserves managers used to hold something like 29% of their reserve allocation in the euro. As the peripheral European crisis onset and the ECB cut rates negatively and started doing substantial amounts of quantitative easing, those holdings, reserves holdings in euros, fell from allocations of something like 29% to the low 20s. We've just now started to see those reserves allocations pick back up again. And as the ECB ends its QE next year and starts to normalize interest rates, or at the very least starts to raise interest rates through 2019 and in 2020 starts to get them with a, effectively a positive interest rate, we would expect to see that allocation of international reserves be biased back again towards the euro, pick up maybe towards the mid-20s. And that's a substantial flow. The pool of international reserve assets is something like $11 trillion. And so a 5% pickup in allocations towards the euro from the dollar and that large reserve pool is a substantial flow which should benefit the euro and the yen to a lesser extent. I think also the renminbi is underrepresented in international reserve assets. As the Chinese authorities' objectives of internationalizing the renminbi progress over the coming years, certainly I would expect to see an increased amounts of renminbi holdings in international reserve assets relative to their current low allocation. So it's not about expecting, let's say, the ECB or the BOJ to ever get beyond where the Fed is right now, but it's just over your forecast horizon, expecting them to be normalizing their policy. Exactly. They can catch up. Exactly. We've discussed a little bit in terms of the U.S.'s current account deficit exerting downward pressure on the dollar. We've talked about financial flows, both direct as well as capital flows, also starting to exert some downward pressure. And then you mentioned a third force. There's this idea about policy intervention. So, David, can you speak a little bit about what previous administrations have had as their dollar policy, and are we seeing a shift here? This is sort of an unusual paper for a long-term forecasting paper because we actually spent most of our time looking a long way back in order to look a long way forward. And we looked at, has the U.S. government actually had an aggressive policy on the dollar in the past, and what has that done? And of course, what we've seen is we've had periods where the dollar has been very far away from fair value, but we have seen periods where we have had policy intervention and it actually has been effective. The most notable of these was way back in 1985 was the Plaza Accord. If you go back to the early 1980s, the US was running a big trade deficit, but we had very high interest rates because Paul Volcker was trying to crush inflation. We also had actually strong economic growth as the economy came out of the big recession of 1982 and there were some tax cuts under President Reagan, and these combined forces really caused a big flow of money into U.S. assets and pushed the dollar up. But it pushed it up to an entirely unreasonable level. Particularly after the 1984 election, the administration became more concerned about, you know, this high dollar is eventually going to do really big damage to the U.S. manufacturing sector. And so they instituted a policy of trying to normalize this, and they got together with the other, at that time, G5 
countries, which included West Germany, Japan, France, and the UK. And they came up with what was called a Plaza Accord, which was basically an idea of we're going to normalize rates. Now, they didn't do very much in terms of actual intervention. It was pretty minor, but just the coordinated message from these five governments that we think the US dollar is too high, it needs to come down, did help push it down. It was already coming down a bit, it really accelerated that. So it was effective. And what we've seen in the past is these kinds of policies, we saw with Abenomics, where Shinzo Abe decided you know, to try to help talk down the yen. This has worked in the past, provided the direction in which you're trying to push a currency makes some sense from an economic perspective. So it has worked in the past. What's ironic about the US situation is, yes, it worked. And then because of various things that happened in the late 1980s, including the stock market crash of 1987, we suddenly got on this bandwagon of we will not interfere in currency markets. And then even worse, that we believe in a strong dollar at all times. And for various political reasons, every administration up to the current one have simply repeated the mantra that we believe in a strong dollar. Now, why should we believe in a strong dollar? I can't think of a good reason to. I mean, the dollar is not our national flag. Your national flag, you fly as high as you can. The dollar is simply an instrument of economic policy, and it should be set at an appropriate level for the economy. But we've had this policy of a strong dollar, and that has actually meant that I think other countries have really taken advantage of the United States in this case. But I will say that there has been a change in direction with the last election. I think the current U.S. administration is much more willing to see a weaker dollar over time. And indeed, in a world where inflation is hardly stalking the land, it makes sense to have a weaker currency. But that change in policy, I think, could have an effect. It has had an effect in the past. I think it can have an effect in the future. And are there any particular actions you would need to see in terms of the administration or anything else that can particularly accelerate? It gets a little tricky. There aren't very many actions the Treasury Department on its own can take. You could argue that a Federal Reserve that was concerned about low inflation in the United States could take some action themselves. The Federal Reserve has got a balance sheet of $4.5 trillion, but it is almost all dollars. And there's no reason why, actually, our U.S. central bank couldn't diversify its own reserve base a bit. So there are things that could be done, but I think just an agreement or a bias towards a more neutral dollar policy as opposed to a strong dollar policy, that on its own, I think, can have some effect on currency markets, particularly in the long run. Yeah, I think that there is some pretty big inconsistencies with the current administration's policy towards the dollar. I mean, in fact, to be fair, the last few administrations have paid barely more than lip service to a strong dollar policy. There's very few actions they took to ensure a strong dollar. And there's certainly a challenge for the Trump administration in that they're trying to promote measures to boost growth, improve competitiveness. And those factors in isolation would not serve to weaken the dollar very effectively. But as David's talked about, they do seem far more biased towards promoting a weaker dollar. And I think one of the key areas of focus has been on intervention. Now, a number of Asian countries have persistently intervened to prevent their currencies weakening, despite them running substantial balance of payment surpluses. I'm thinking here of currencies such as the Korean won, the Taiwan and Taiwanese dollar, Thai baht as well. Now, what we have seen since the Trump administration has come to power and the rhetoric on the dollar has increased is we've seen a lower amount of intervention via central banks that have traditionally kept their currency 
weaker than the balance of payments developments would suggest. We've seen appreciation of the Taiwanese dollar, the Thai baht, for example, and indeed the Korean won. And I think that is one way that the administration's rhetoric is serving to weaken the dollar, to make it less politically acceptable to effectively try to manipulate currency markets. And the threat of sanctions, the threat of countervailing duties, I think has certainly change the currency landscape from that perspective in that we see less intervention in currency markets. There still obviously is intervention, but to a lesser degree. And that's allowed these currencies with balance of payment surpluses to appreciate versus the US dollar. And I think one of the other things that's really changed is you talk about lip service to the currency. And I think that that really is true. I think the reality is that both for the Federal Reserve and the U.S. administration, trade has always been a relatively small part of the U.S. economy compared to the situation for any other economy in the world. We are a relatively closed economy. 90% of what happens in the U.S. is basically because of what happens in the U.S. So that meant that the Japanese were more concerned about achieving a low currency. That means various emerging markets with big surpluses, as Roger was talking about, have been more concerned with maintaining a low currency. But what we're seeing here is a little bit of a change in attitude where we really do see trade issues as being important And for as long as we are in this political dynamic in the United States, I think that will put political downward pressure on the US dollar and also make it harder for foreign governments and foreign central banks to deliberately hold their currencies down when, as Roger says, economics suggests their currencies really ought to be higher. And I think we're getting to a really interesting territory here, which is before speaking about the dollar as a broader concept and there being downward pressure over the next 10, 15 years exactly from these three flows we mentioned, balance of payments, financial, as well as policy. Are there any other particular winners or losers that should emerge in terms of currencies, countries over this forecast period? We started mentioning some Asian economies. Are there any others that come to mind? Yeah, I would suggest that those currencies that run persistent balance of payment surpluses but that also look undervalued from a PPP perspective would be the most likely key winners from those sorts of actions. So I would suggest that in developed market currencies, the euro and the yen both run current account surpluses, just over 3% in the case of the euro, just over 4% in the case of the yen, and are undervalued. Now, we might say that relative to long-term PPP, The euro is something like 10% undervalued relative to the long-term PPP in Japan. It's probably something more like 20 to 30%, depending exactly where you have your PPP bounds. But certainly those currents are surplus countries, undervalued key winners. And in emerging markets, the Asian currencies previously talked about, large balance of payment surpluses, very suggestive of undervaluation should be those key winners. I think another way of looking at this and, you know, why is this paper on the dollar in our long-term capital market assumptions is because there are very clear investment winners and losers in this. If we believe that in the long run, the dollar comes down, we're not making a dramatic call on this, but it will tend to amplify the return on unhedged investments overseas. And it's one of the reasons why we feel quite strongly that people ought to make sure they have enough exposure, U.S. investors in particular, have enough exposure to international investments, particularly in those areas where the currency might appreciate against U.S. dollar. I think that's one issue. And then the other issue, of course, is commodities. One of the problems that a strong dollar caused is it caused or contributed to a fall in commodity prices, which was very problematic for a lot of individual emerging markets and some developed countries. If the dollar weakens over time, then emerging market countries that are commodity producers and even 
some developed countries like Australia and Canada could see their currencies, which have been weak in recent years, appreciate because of the stability that a weaker dollar might give to commodity markets. So it sounds like there are some particular currencies that could be winners here, so particular asset classes. You mentioned international investing for U.S. dollar-based investors, as well as commodity prices. I'm thinking, are there any other implications here as well when we think about economics, for example, when we think about trade or inflation? Are there any other implications here in terms of what we should expect from the economy? I think a generally falling dollar will reduce the risk of outright deflation in the United States. So that is certainly one implication. But I think the other thing we have to recognize is that, you know, these are long-term capital market assumptions. We recognize this is sort of the middle point of what we expect. The path there that will not be nearly as smooth as we lay out in these assumptions, we know that. We have to carefully look at all these forces, the trade forces, the financial forces, the political forces, look at all of these things over time to see, is the story changing? As of right now, it looks like the dollar will come down over time, but we strongly believe in active management, professional management to continue to look at this story. It's an important story going forward. But as of 2017, as we look forward to 2018 and out over the next 10 to 15 years, it does look like the dollar will come down over time, benefiting commodities, benefiting some countries or the currencies of countries with trade surpluses. And generally, it's a positive force. I mean, what we're saying is the U.S. dollar will move back to equilibrium. And generally, as asset prices move back to equilibrium, that's a positive force for global investors. Thank you so much for joining us on Insights. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. And if you have any feedback to provide, please submit feedback on our website. Recorded on December 8th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, 
or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.